The National Commission on Terrorist Attacks on the United States uh, continues to work, and we intend to report to the nation no later than our statutory deadline of May 27, 2004. We will speak this afternoon about our access to documents, what we have done, and what we plan to do. We will outline some of our investigative and policy questions uh, that we now have pending before us. Uh, we first turn to the issues that we left open at the time of our July 8th report. Are we getting access to documents that we need in order to complete our job in, in the time allocated to us by law? First of all, since the, since the July report, execu executive branch agencies have significantly improved their performance in responding to our document requests. There are still pending requests, and many documents have yet to be produced. Key agencies have assigned additional people to produce documents. Agencies initially slow in responding, including the Department of Defense, have worked very hard to help our commission. While there have been some unnecessary delays, we now have over 10,000 documents in hand and have access to documents from the executive branch numbering more than two. intervene whenever we decide it's in our national security interest to intervene. And if you don't like it, lump it. The problem with America is not that we go around marauding around the world imposing ourselves. Mm. The problem with America in the last 10, 15 years since the end of the Cold War, really in the last 60 years, is that we've been too slow to get involved. I don't know how many Iraqi civilians were killed, but I can assure you that the number is the absolute uh, minimal that it's possible uh, in modern warfare. Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. You know, that land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side. Welcome to the Darkened Hour. Welcome to another episode of the Darkened Hour. I'm your host, Adam Fitzgerald. In this special uh, episode, I want to talk about the two 9-11 congressional inquiries, specifically the National Commission on Terrorist Attacks upon the United States, also known as the 9-11 Commission, which was formed on November 27, 2002 and dissolved on August 21, 2004, and the joint inquiry into intelligence community activities before and after the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001, which began in February of 2002 and issued its final report and dissolved in December of 2002. The 9-11 Commission actually was a bigger investigation as it covered many areas of local, state, and federal governments, as well as the intelligence services and members of the Bush and Clinton administrations. The Joint House Inquiry was a little bit more specific. They investigated the intelligence failures relating to the 9-11 attacks and before, and interviewed many people from the Clinton and Bush administrations, as well as members of the CIA, FBI, and the NSA. And I have both congressional inquiries uploaded to my YouTube channel. In fact, I'm the only person in the world that I know of, 
uh, scouring the internet for years that I'm the only person to do this. And as well as C-SPAN, they have it on their own channel, but I have it, I have it on mine. But I managed to break it down into manageable time edits, whereas you don't have to watch a four-hour uh, briefing. Um, I managed to break it down to a specific panelist interviewing a specific subject, and they vary between five to ten minutes each. I feel that the public needs to have a better understanding of what was being said in these inquiries instead of just dismissing them all. Uh, the, the fringe aspects of the 9-11 truth movement would like for you to know that the entire investigation is not worthy of your time because they all lied or that it was all false. Well, how would you know it's false if you didn't read it? There were many aspects and many interviews done in both inquiries where they contradicted even within their own department's superiors. So I would say it's an incomplete investigation into 9-11, not a totally false one. But in this episode, I want to cover five areas that I found were the most egregious when it comes to a lack of information sharing, a lack of acting on said information, and also a complete denial of sharing or ascertaining information before 9-11 that if it was acted on or shared could have stopped 9-11 even in the many years prior to 9-11. And without this understanding, you will never move forward to having that new investigation that the 9-11 truth movement would like uh, to always blare out on every street corner they can. But you can't get a new investigation when you adhere to fringe conspiracy theories or you don't read the information reported by people within, say, the FBI or the CIA or the State Department, because you never read it. You don't know what's there. You don't know what's not there. An investigator looks at information prior to a crime scene, ascertains evidence, tests the evidence, and moves forward with his investigation. So in this episode, we'll start with the Clinton administration. And during the mid-1990s, there was a transnational, international, uh, transnational terrorist plot that was hatched by the mastermind of the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, Ramzi Youssef, and his uncle, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who at this time was unknown to many. He was not Al-Qaeda yet. And these two men were not part of Al-Qaeda officially. They did not swear by that loyalty to bin Laden that we know of. After the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, both men met in the Philippines to hatch another plot called Bajinka. 
is where the idea for 9-11 came from. A plot where they would put 12 timer bombs, micro bombs, underneath the fuel, underneath the seats where the fuel tanks were held on these aircraft. According to the dossier from the Philippines National Police who investigated the matter, there was also additional plots. One of the Bajenka co-conspirators, Abdul Hakim Murad, who was captured while making a bomb in the hotel they were staying in, there was a hidden aspect to the plot, that there were sleeper cells inside the United States, and that they would actually commandeer the plane after taking it by force and crash them into the targets, such as the Empire State Building, the World Trade Center, Pentagon, Golden Gate Bridge, a nuclear facility, the U.S. Capitol, and intentionally crashed them. This report, according to the Philippines' lead investigator, Rodolfo Mendoza, was handed to the FBI. The FBI's director at the time, Louis Free, states that, yes, we did share this information. But was this information acted on? Well, let's start with the CIA's threat matrix reports of al-Qaeda threats to civil aviation overseas. And this is actually coming from the 9-11 Commission report's own staffer, Christopher Kojim, in which he states that there was a threat to civil aviation overseas from this 1995 report from the Philippines National Police. The intelligence community issued a threat advisory warning that the threat of impending al-Qaeda attacks would likely continue indefinitely. The advisory cited threats in the Arabian Peninsula, Jordan, Israel, and Europe, and suggested that al-Qaeda was lying in wait and searching for gaps in security before moving forward with the planned attacks. During the spring and summer of 2001, President Bush had occasionally asked his briefers whether any of the threats pointed to the United States. Reflecting on these questions, the CIA decided to write a briefing article summarizing its understanding of this danger. The article, which the President received on August 6th, is attached to this staff statement. Despite the large number of threats received, there were no specifics regarding time, place, method, or target. Disrupt disruption efforts continued. An al-Qaeda associate from North Africa connected to Abu Zubaydah was arrested in the United Arab Emirates on August 13th. He had apparently been planning an attack against the U.S. Embassy in Paris. CIA analysts who have recently reviewed the threat surge of the summer of 2001 told us they believe it may have been related to a separate stream of events. These threats may have been referring to the 9-11 attack, the planned assassination of Northern Alliance leader Ahmed Shah Massoud, or other operations. In July 2001, the CSG alerted federal law enforcement agencies and asked the FAA to send out security advisories. Beginning on July 27th, the FAA issued several security directives to U.S. air carriers prior to September 11th. In addition, the FAA issued a number of general warnings about potential threats, primarily overseas to... As you can see, 
the threat daily matrix reports from the CIA even admitted, reported that there was a threat to civil aviation. And that throughout the mid-90s, bin Laden had inquired about attacking civil aviation. The problem was, was that the Bajinka report stated that there was, or that there were, sleeper cells inside the United States, as 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 uh, stated by one of the Bajinka co-conspirators, Abdul-Hakim Murad. The problem was, why wasn't it updated to state that there was threats to airliners inside the United States? Bob Kerry of the uh, Joint House Inquiry had a few choice words with the acting FAA director, Monty Belger. And even asked and inquired about why this information to the intelligence services was not shared. Now, Bob Kerry also stated that there was a detailed analysis of bin Laden in the intelligence community that was not updated, that the information was old from the late 80s, early 90s. Why was bin Laden's profile outdated? And Bob Kerry made sure that the answer would not go unchecked. And I asked Dr. K, I think you were in, how long were you in the CTC? You were... Uh, been in seven and a half years. I mean, we, we've been told that there was a comprehensive analysis of UBL that was done in January 1997. Correct. Were you a part of that analysis? Uh, it, <clears throat> yes, I'm, I was, I oversaw the, the completion of the project, correct. Were you disturbed that it was, that the results of that analysis was not disseminated, particularly since the National Intelligence Estimate uh, was not updated? Uh, by 1997, we were still presuming those of us who were being delivered information, we're still being told and presumed that Osama bin Laden was financing terrorism, that he was not the head of al-Qaeda. We didn't even have the information that uh, Ms. Duran uh, talked about uh, with, with Fadl, with Junior. We didn't have that information either. Uh, I mean, did you think it was a mistake not to disseminate the comprehensive analysis that was done in 1997? Um, I think it, it was, um, it would have been better had we, had we been able to get out as much of that story as possible, as quickly as possible. We were unable to, the, the project that, you know, that's mentioned, um, at the time it was completed, and completed means essentially it was in draft, was not in, in a form that was suitable for um, outside consumption, and it needed, needed to be prepared in such a fashion that it, that it would be manageable, easily digested, and understood by the policymakers. And that's the problem, is that the information under the Clinton administration was not updated. That people within the National Security Council were acting on information coming to them from the CIA, from the FBI. And information coming from overseas, foreign intelligence, third-hand intelligence that the information was not updated. Now, I don't. I couldn't tell you why this information was not updated. I couldn't tell you why um, the CIA basically, which is considered the more newly invigorated agency, the FBI as the old dinosaur, 
flat foot. Um, the NSA considered the more dynamic intelligence service, but they didn't really come into fruition until the early 2000s. So when you have agencies like the Office of National Intelligence and the CIA acting on information that should have been updated, information coming from sources like Jamal al-Fadl, who is one of the original members of al-Qaeda, who actually flipped for the state and indicted bin Laden on information coming from him about attacks inside the United States and the broad nexus of Al-Qaeda International. Then came the 1998 East Africa bombings of Dar es Salaam in Tanzania, Kenya and Tanzania specifically. Did the Clinton administration act appropriately? Now that bin Laden is considered now a direct threat to the United States, after these attacks, when he should have been a direct threat even before then with the intelligence that they have provided, the intelligence services, that is, that was shared with the principals' meetings, leaders of the state Pentagon intelligence services that would meet at the White House and talk about the daily threat matrix updates and threats to national security. What was the, what was the response by the Clinton administration in regards to these attacks in Kenya and Tanzania? Well, Fred Fielding of the 9-11 Commission asked that question to Secretary of State under the Clinton administration, Madeleine Albright. Here was their response. Did the Taliban have a reason to believe that, that we would make good on that threat, that it was a valid threat? and and. Likewise, what steps, when, when you formulate a policy to make that kind of a threat, what steps did you take to ensure that we, in fact, had a credible military force that could enforce that? Well, first of all, as I said, uh, President Clinton had ordered uh, that lethal force be used. There were armed submarines off, uh, in the Arabian Sea and uh, a variety bombers on standby and ready to go so that the orders were there. The president also asked for a variety of options from the Pentagon uh, in terms of special forces, a variety of, as far as I know, there was no option off the table and that there were questions about the Pentagon saying that these were not viable. Uh, you will have Secretary Cohen here, um, and you can ask him these questions. But I do know that from the perspective of one of the members of the Principals Committee, I.S. Uh, Secretary of State, can assure you that the President asked for a variety of military options. And so um, I, I, again, think that you have to, from my perspective, the Pentagon did not come forward with viable options in response to what the President uh, was asking for. Here's the problem with that is because during these principals' meetings, there was a number of people that went to these meetings and even gave scenarios on how to assassinate bin Laden while he was in Khartoum 
and then when he relocated back to Afghanistan in 1996. According to one of the legendary CIA uh, field officers, Billy Waugh, he would report back to his superiors that he would jog past bin Laden and his entourage periodically as they thought he was just an ordinary American visiting cartoon and was a fitness instructor, where Billy Wall said that he would get close enough to bin Laden and kill him with a rock over the head or shoot him. But plans like this were rejected time and again. Nobody wanted to take that chance. The drone program was just relatively new and didn't know uh, which department would be in charge of assassinating or using the drone program to assassinate specific targets overseas. The Pentagon didn't want to do it, and the CIA was under the church committee hearings, and so they wanted to clean their image. Well, that all changed after 9-11, didn't it? So nobody really wanted to pull the trigger. Again, we'll go back to Fred Fielding of the 9-11 Commission, asking Sandy Berger, the former National Security Advisor in the Clinton administration, on the chances to kill bin Laden and why they weren't successful. About the three occasions between December of 98 and, and mid-99, I'm, uh, I'm particularly trying to, to get a handle on who and why uh, the uh, so-called desert camp incident uh, was aborted. And, and, and what happened there, nobody seems to say, well, it was our decision. There seemed to be really good intelligence, and it, it went for a period of days, and then suddenly it was aborted. So uh, anything I, you I, can I, shed... I, I cannot on. distinguish that incident from the two or three other incidents where I would get information either from Mr. Clark or from Mr. Tennant that we had some opportunity, that we were... We were watching this very, very carefully, stay tuned. I would get then uh, authorization from all of the principals and uh, put the president on alert that something might be uh, possible. Uh, in each of those cases, the director of the CIA would come back to me and say, I do not believe we have reliable enough intelligence to, to, to recommend going forward. Um, and we did discuss it, as he, as he said this morning. It was interactive. Um, but there was never a situation, there was never a situation in which we were presented information that uh, bin Laden was here and we didn't take it because of civilian casualties or any other reason. The only other thing I would add is I have, I've been told that a subsequent review of that, of that episode suggests that bin Laden never was there. I don't know whether that's true or not. At the time, um, we were told, uh, the, 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 the assessment was that there was not reliable information. Numerous threats to kill bin Laden and nobody wanted to undertake it. Now, what we can ascertain throughout the Clinton administration was that there was early intelligence warnings to civil aviation, but that 
this did not translate to domestic flights, international flights only, which was in direct contradiction to what Abdul Hakim Murad had told the Philippines investigators, that there were sleeper cells inside the United States. And that this information was shared, according to Louis Free, the director of the FBI, this was shared to the FAA and the intelligence community. So how could it be that the 9-11 tax could have been successful had this information was shared? Well, Tim Romer of the 9-11 Commission when interview Rohan Guantanara, the Institute for Defense and Strategic Studies in Singapore, if the Bajinka plot was understood fully, could 9-11 have been prevented? But specifically, Dr. Gunaratna, if the U.S. understands the Bajinka plot, uh, that weapons of uh, planes could be used as weapons, how then in, in not only understanding that plot, uh, not only going back and knowing that uh, a, a group had attacked the World Trade Center in 1993, how do you then avert 9-11 uh, by following uh, this one particular individual? Sir, Muhammad Jamal Khalifa, was in the Philippines and he was in touch with this group. But Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was the more important man. If so you say you get, eventually you get Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and that prevents 9-11 from occurring? Absolutely, because Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was the mastermind of 9-11. He organized that whole operation. The first planning meeting of 9-11 was held from the 5th to the 8th of January in Kuala Lumpur. Who chaired that meeting? Khalid Sheikh Mohammed chaired that meeting. The first two hijackers to enter the United States, they were present at that meeting. So it, the 9-11 operation is an extension of Oplan Bojinka. So the, 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 the players of Oplan Bojinka, they were not all arrested. Now here's the problem with Gunaratna's uh, assertion here is that we could have prevented 9-11 had we acted on the information from the Bajinka plot. Had we implemented stricter security measures regarding cockpit doors, for example, uh, putting uh, suspicious individuals from Saudi Arabia and Pakistan on uh, no-fly lists with incomplete... Um, incomplete INS information, immigration information. But we didn't. Nobody really took the threat seriously because we never seen a martyrdom operation where there was an intentional plane crash. The FAA had not updated their uh, security briefings regarding how to train flight attendants, pilots, in regards to a, uh, a person who wants to commit suicide by commandeering a plane and crashing it into a specific target. That the information that we had, had it been shared and acted on from 1996, five years prior to 9-11, we should, five years, we could have had much more stricter security measures and 9-11 could have been prevented.
So what do we take away from the Clinton administration? That there were threats to civil aviation coming from a direct participant in the Bajinka plot. Two, that information regarding bin Laden and al-Qaeda was outdated and that it was not updated even when he relocated back to Afghanistan. And three, inaction. Inaction in regards to assassinating bin Laden when they had the chance, while he was living in Khartoum from 1992 to 1996. Because by 1996, mid-1996, he relocated to Afghanistan and he enjoyed sanctuary, security sanctuary of the Taliban who had taken uh, part of the country over. So the chances to kill bin Laden in the mid-90s were missed. And now here we are to the Bush administration. Information, again, coming from the intelligence community regarding not just a Pajinka plot, but a threat to civil aviation inside the country. One such important piece of information, a report by Ken Williams, an FBI agent out of Phoenix, who would author the infamous Phoenix Memo, who I've interviewed on this show, which he talked about an informant of his that was well-known in the Islamic circles, heard information about terrorists inside Arizona that were training at flight schools and wanted to crash them intentionally into U.S. specific locations. Ken Williams was then transferred out of the counterterrorism center and to investigate an arson. And when he came back, he released a report which went to the CIA and the FBI, specific locations, not to, it wasn't a universal uh, national report, but it went to specific people who did not read the information on time. So when the information went to FBI headquarters, Tim Romer of the 9-11 Commission questioned FBI Director Louis Free why the FBI didn't share this information. Here is uh, a de declassified copy of the Williams memo. And you said in an answer to a previous question that you thought things might have been handled the proper way. This agent asks that two things be done. One, that the FBI should accumulate a listing of civil aviation universities and colleges around the country and share these with the appropriate liaison. And two, that the FBI should discuss this matter with other elements of U.S. intelligence community. Neither one of those is done. Now, I agree with you. This is not the roadmap to 9-11, but it's certainly asking to do two things to New York and headquarters. Neither one of them are done. Why not? Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I can't answer that, obviously, for the, the time and space reasons that uh, are obvious. I could speculate on it, uh, and what I would say is that you know, the simple fact or the apparent simple fact of getting from all of those civil aviation schools around the United States 
you know, names and identifying information of those students, uh, first of all, you would have had to overcome uh, a couple of federal statutes that prevent educational institutions from giving that information out without a subpoena or a grand jury request. Uh, assuming you could have done that. But Mr. Williams didn't do that in Phoenix, did he? I mean, oh. he found out the trend in Phoenix without having to go around a, a statute or a law, right? Well, yeah, but what he's asking for is a national investigation that would uh, direct itself to, to thousands task. and thousands and thousands of uh, students uh, who are uh, uh, from Arab countries uh, who are taking flight lessons in the United States. And, and there's your problem. Again, much like in the Clinton administration, information that was not acted on. And it wasn't just the intelligence community either. This is the, we're talking about local state governments as well. Such as the Department of Transportation. Did they receive information regarding threats to civil aviation? John Lehman asked that question to Norman Mineta, of the, who was the U.S. Transportation Secretary. Did they receive information from the Intelligence Committee regarding threats to civil aviation? There were many intelligence reports leading up to 9-11 uh, and actual uh, uh, plots uncovered to use aircraft as missiles. Do you feel that the system set up to provide to you as Secretary of Transportation the, the latest intelligence bearing on your responsibilities, uh, uh, such as that, uh, that subject, uh, was adequate before 9-11? Uh, if not, have measures been taken to see that you are provided uh, with uh, the, the best possible product on a daily basis as to uh, threats to the broad range of transportation uh, assets uh, in uh, under your purview. Uh, uh, could you comment on before and after? Well, <clears throat> I, I do get a daily briefing, intelligence briefing, and I did during that time period prior to the 11th of September and subsequent to the 11th of September. And there's no doubt that the nature of the intelligence data uh, has improved. And um, so, um, but again, there was nothing in those intelligence reports that would have been specific to anything that happened on the 11th of September. There was nothing in the preceding time period about uh, aircraft being used as a weapon or of any other terrorist types of activities of that nature. And uh, so, uh, but we did, I do get briefings uh, and I think that <clears throat> since the um, 11th of September 2001, the nature of the briefings have improved. They have improved, but not acted on. Again, priorities within the Bush administration have changed. Whereas Clinton acknowledged the threat of bin Laden, 
but did not take action. But when Bush came into office in 2000, the priorities were not outwardly, but more Cold War, China, Iraq were considered more of a threat than, say, Al-Qaeda, for example, or bin Laden, even though the intelligence reports were already there for Bush to go over. Once again, Tim Romer asks the question to Secretary of State Donald Roosevelt why there were no principals meetings about Al-Qaeda throughout the years 2000 and 2001. What was Rumsfeld's response? To the metric of the Clinton administration, and again, I'm, we'll be talking to Mr. Clark tomorrow, probably grilling him on what the Clinton administration did right and did wrong. One of the metrics, again, for the Clinton administration was principles meetings. And how many they had on a particular topic, right or wrong. Were there principal meetings on al-Qaeda and terrorism before September the 4th? Well, there were certainly principals meetings where, where it was discussed, whether it was the sole topic or not. Uh, the records, you have those records and you would know. Right. I, I left out Our a records couple, say I, no. That is that the right? The first principals meeting on terrorism Just was solely on that topic. Until September 4th. Um, I, I should add a couple of other things that were going on. The, the, in addition to meeting with the president in the National Security Council meetings, I was meeting with the president every week uh, separately and uh, unquestionably as we, Dick General Myers and, and I do it together uh, almost always and often... Uh, uh, Secretary Wolfowitz. The other thing we did was I made a decision early on that the single most important thing we could do uh, that would benefit uh, us in terms of these types of problems would be to develop a, an exceedingly close link with the Central Intelligence Agency and the intelligence community. And as a result, uh, George Tenet, who I knew and respected, uh, and I started eating lunch with either Paul or Dick Myers or Steve Cambone. Uh, and one or two of his key people, depending on the topic, and have done it consistently for the last three years. And we did it during that period. And it has, in my view, been critically important to link those two institutions together. And I do believe they are as well linked together today as probably ever in history. I would, I would say there's one other thing that the Secretary did as well, and that was when developing the QDR, which we had to start right after the Secretary came into office, uh, by law, was to develop um, as part of our strategy, uh, articulate for the first time in my memory that we had to set aside forces for homeland defense. And it's the first time we've ever articulated that in our strategy, which set us up pretty well uh, when we wanted to create NORTHCOM, Northern Command, because we'd, we'd thought about it up to that point. But that was just one example. I mean, there are lots of things we did in, in, in that area that were different. Of course, you know, they all claimed that Al-Qaeda was a priority before then, but were they really? Did they consider Al-Qaeda a threat to national security inside the United States? And, T and Tim Rober didn't let go of this. He knew from the information by interviewing people within the Clinton administration that Al-Qaeda and bin Laden were indeed a priority, number one in the Clinton administration. They just didn't act on it. Why wasn't it number one in the Bush administration?
did the Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld, even consider al-Qaeda a threat? What was the answer? Did you consider al-Qaeda to be a first-order threat? And particularly in the spring and the summer of 2001, how did you practice this priority? I and others in the administration uh, did consider it a, uh, a serious threat. The intelligence a correction if it goes back through history, their prior behavior, the statements that have been indicated by Senator Kerry, and the intelligence threat reports that one would read as we went along uh, drove one to a conclusion that they were active, that they had been successful in some attacks, and that they were planning, talking, chattering, and hoping to, uh, to do various types of damage. Um, I, I tried in my remarks to lay out how we uh, addressed the concern. One level was at the National Security Council level and the planning and the process there. A second was to address the department as a whole and see if we couldn't strengthen our special forces, strengthen our agility, uh, develop the ability to move faster, uh, to uh, move with smaller elements rather than large footprints, um, to... But the special ops were not used during that time period, correct? Uh, not against al-Qaeda. They, they were used in some other things, as I recall. So with reference to al-Qaeda... But the changes to special ops are still taking place. It, it'll take probably another year for the, the process to... For them to move from a supporting to a supported command requires them to develop the planning functions in key locations around the world and to rearrange themselves both with respect to their organizational structure and their equipment. But some Rumsfeld's obfuscating here, by the way, because in 1999, the CIA outlined a plan to go to war with al-Qaeda. This is coming from the DCI, George Tenet. But the CIA was at war with al-Qaeda. However, this did not transfer over to the Department of Defense and also to the Bush administration and his neocon lackeys like Douglas Fight and Paul Wolfowitz, Richard Armitage. Loyalists in the Bush administration like Condoleezza Rice didn't get the memo regarding the Bajika plot, obviously, because when she was asked about threats to civil aviation from even the co-chair of the 9-11 Commission, Thomas Kane. Why was there no mention of planes being used as weapons in the intelligence briefs provided to the President of the United States in the year 2000-2001? What do you think Condoleezza Rice said? I've got a question now I'd like to ask you, given me by a number of members of the families. Um, did you ever see or hear uh, from the FBI, from the CIA, from any other intelligence agency, any memos or discussions or anything else between the time you elected, got into office and 9-11 that talked about using planes as bombs? Let me address this. 
this question because it has been on the table. Um, I think that uh, concern about what I might have known or we might have known was provoked by uh, some statements that I made in a press conference. Um, I was in a press conference to try and describe the August 6th memo, which I've talked about here in the, um, the, my opening remarks and which I talked about with you in the private session. And um, I said at one point that this was a historical memo, that it was, um, was, there was, it was not based on new threat information. And um, I said no one could have imagined them taking a plane, slamming it into the, the Pentagon, into the, I'm paraphrasing now, into the World Trade Center, uh, using planes as a missile. Um, as I said to you in the private session, I probably should have said I could have not imagined because within two days, people started to come to me and say, oh, but there were uh, these reports in 1998 and 1999. Uh, the intelligence community did look at information about this. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, uh, Mr. Chairman, the, uh, this kind of analysis about the use of airplanes as weapons actually was never briefed to us. Uh, I cannot tell you that there might not have been a report here or a report there that reached somebody in our midst. Part of the problem is, um, and I think Sandy Berger made this point, that when he was asked the same question, that you have thousands of pieces of information, car bombs and this method and that method, and you have to depend to a certain degree on the intelligence agencies to sort, to tell you what is actually um, is actually relevant, what is actually um, based on sound sources, what is speculative. And uh, I can only assume uh, or believe that, uh, that perhaps the intelligence agencies thought that the sourcing was speculative. All that I can tell you is that it was not in the August 6th memo using planes as a weapon. And I do not remember um, any reports to us, uh, a kind of strategic warning that planes might be used as a weapon. In fact, there were some reports done in 98 and 99. I think I was, I was certainly not aware of them at the time that I spoke. You didn't see any memos to you or any documents no. to you? No, I did not. The tone has changed, doesn't it? That the intelligence did not reach the Bush administration officials in 2000, 2001 regarding threats to civil aviation, even though the information was there. And the one man who could share this information, the one man who actually tried and tried again to get the attention of Condoleezza Rice, who kept getting shot down, was the National Coordinator for Counterterrorism, Richard Clark, who served under the, both the Clinton and Bush administrations. In fact, Clinton would have Clark sit at the head of the principal's meetings. Clark was not even invited to any of the principal's meetings. He called for a January 25th, 2001 meeting at the principals. Tim Romer of the 9-11 Commission asked him what was the response from those people. Move into, with my 15 minutes, let's move into the Bush administration. On January the 25th, we've seen a memo that you've written to Dr. Rice, urgently asking for a principal's review of Al-Qaeda. You include helping the Northern Alliance, covert aid, significant new O2 budget authority to help fight Al-Qaeda, mm -hmm. and response to the USS Cole. You attach to this document 
both the, uh, the Linda Plan of 1998 and a strategy paper from December 2000. Do you get a response to this urgent request for a principal's meeting on these, and how does this affect your time frame for dealing with these important issues? I, I did get a response. The response was um, that in the Bush administration, uh, I should, and my committee, the <coughs> Counterterrorism Security Group, should report to the deputies committee, which is a sub-cabinet level committee, and not to the principals. Uh, and that therefore it was inappropriate for me to be asking for a principals meeting. Uh, instead, there would be a deputies meeting. Uh, so does this slow the process down to go to the deputies rather than to the principals or a small group as you previously had done? It slowed it down enormously uh, by months. Uh, first of all, the deputies committee didn't meet uh, urgently in January uh, or February. Uh, then when the Deputies Committee did meet, uh, it took the issue of Al-Qaeda as part of a cluster of policy issues, uh, including uh, nuclear proliferation in South Asia, uh, democratization in Pakistan, uh, how to treat uh, the problems, uh, the various problems, including narcotics and other problems in Afghanistan, uh, and launched on a series of deputies meetings extending over several months to address Al-Qaeda in the context of all of those interrelated issues. That process probably ended, I think, in July of 2001. So we were ready for a uh, principals meeting in July, but the principals calendar was full and then they went on vacation, many of them, in August, so we, we couldn't meet in August. Uh, and therefore, the principals met uh, in September. By then, it was too late because it's September 11, 2001, terrorist attacks, 9-11 happened. But all throughout the spring and summer of 2001, information from the FBI, information like the Phoenix memo from Ken Williams in Phoenix, or Harry Samet, the arresting agent of Zacharias Basawi, the alleged 20th hijacker in Minnesota, the FISA warrants that was issued by the Radical Fundamentalist Unit. Had this information been shared with Richard Clark, could it have been, could it have prevented the attacks of September 11th? Well, that's what Tim Romer asked Richard Clark. I'll ask you, uh, with my yellow light on, uh, <laughs> a question about the summer of 2000 alert. You were saying, the CIA was saying, everybody was saying something spectacular is about to happen. Spiking in intelligence, something terrible is about to happen. You've told us in some of our interviews, you only wish you would have known at that time, in that summer, what the FBI knew with regard to Massawi, the Phoenix Memo, and terrorists in the United States. What could you have done with some of that information, with these spiked alerts, with the spectacular attack on the horizon in the summer of 2001? Well, Congressman, it is, it is very easy in retrospect to say that I would have done this or I would have done that. Uh, and we'll never know. Uh, I would like to have think, I would like to think that had I been informed by the FBI that two senior Al-Qaeda operatives who had been in a planning meeting earlier in Kuala Lumpur 
were now in the United States, and we knew that, and we knew their names, and I think we even had their pictures. Uh, I would like to think that I would have released, or would have had the FBI release, uh, a press release with their names, with their descriptions, held a press conference, tried to get their names and pictures on the front page of every paper, America's Most Wanted, the Evening News, uh, and caused a successful nationwide manhunt for those two, two of the 19 hijackers. But I don't know, uh, because you're asking me a hypothetical, and uh, I have the benefit now of 2020 hindsight. And there's the problem, right? The problem is information was not shared or acted upon once again. So what are the takeaways of the Bush administration? One, information about threats to civil aviation was not disseminated to the Bush administration officials in the year 2000 and 2001. Two, priorities within the Bush administration changed. Away from bin Laden and al-Qaeda under the Clinton administration, directly to Iraq. And three, warnings, briefings, reports, all held in incommunicado from Bush administration officials because they saw an adversary in Clark, even though respected, that he was not to be trusted. But as Richard Clark said, the intelligence came from the intelligence community regarding two al-Qaeda operatives inside the United States. And this is where we're going to delve into the CIA. I've done countless videos about the CIA mishandling of information, intentional mishandling of information, intentional withholding of information to the FBI and to the State Department. I even did an episode regarding Carl Levin uh, and his inquiry into George Tennant, the DCI, Kofor Black, the head of counterterrorism, CIA, and, of course, Tom Wilshire, the deputy director of the Bin Laden Issue Station, Courtney Malik Station. But here is where we can actually start opening the lid, if you will, regarding a new investigation into 9-11. Because to me, this is the, the crux, part of the crux of understanding how the attacks were successful. Barbara Grew was a congressional staffer of the 9-11 Commission and gave a short opening regarding what the CIA knew of Khalid al-Madar and Taufik Benatash, also known as Khalad, from a high-level summit meeting in Malaysia held by al-Qaeda and an al-Qaeda affiliate, Jama Islamiya, located in Indonesia where it is reported that the CIA knew about this information, this meeting from the NSA, who had wiretapped an Al-Qaeda communications hub located in Sana, Yemen, which was used to carry messages to Al-Qaeda across the world. The NSA told the CIA about this high-level meeting that was to take place in January of 2000. Again, Barbara Grew of the 9-11 Commission details this subject. 
This meant that Khalad and Midhar were two different people. But the fact that both had attended the meeting in Kuala Lumpur also meant there was a link between Khalad, a suspected leader in the coal bombing, the Kuala Lumpur meeting, and Midhar. Despite this new information, we found no effort by the CIA to renew the long-abandoned search for Midhar or his travel companions. In addition, we found that the CIA did not notify the FBI of this identification until late August. DCI Tennant and Kofer Black testified before the joint inquiry that the FBI had access to this information from the beginning. But based on extensive record, including documents that were not available to the CIA personnel who drafted that testimony, we conclude they were in error. The FBI's primary coal investigators had no knowledge of Khalid's possible participation in the Kuala Lumpur meeting until after the September 11 attacks. So what did the CIA collect on Bin Laden and Al-Qaeda throughout the years? What else did they know about them? Because what we're trying to prove here is that there wasn't a lack of information. The conspiracy is they had a lot of information. Information that could have been, if, if ascertained, could have been acted upon and shared with the whole of the intelligence community and not hoarded. Could it have prevented the 9-11 attacks? I don't know. It's a hypothetical, as Richard Clark would say. But what did the intelligence community as a whole collect on bin Laden and al-Qaeda? Let Carl Levin of the Joint House Inquiry tell you. And I've prepared a chronology, which uh, I'll share with all of the members, um, which just to summarize, go back a few years before her beginning of the story. In January of 96, when the CIA created a special unit to focus on bin Laden. In February of 98, when bin Laden issued a public fatwa authorizing and promoting attacks on U.S. civilians anywhere in the world. May 1998, in a press conference when bin Laden says he's going to bring war to America. In June 1998, when the intelligence community obtains information from several sources that bin Laden is considering attacks in the U.S., including Washington and New York. August 1998, when the intelligence community obtains information that an unidentified group from the Middle East, they're going to fly an explosive-laden plane from a foreign country into the World Trade Center. September 1998, when the intelligence community obtains information that bin Laden's next operation could possibly involve flying an aircraft loaded with explosives into a U.S. airport. October 1998, when the intelligence community obtains information that al-Qaeda was trying to establish an, uh, an operative cell within the United States. The fall of 1998, when the intelligence community obtains information concerning a bin Laden pilot, uh, plot involving aircraft in New York, Washington uh, areas. And then in December 1998, when uh, we, uh, as we heard yesterday or the day before, when DCI Tenet uh, pro provided some written guidance to presumably everybody in the CIA declaring that the United States is at war with bin Laden and al-Qaeda. That's December 1998, before the story begins. The spring of 1999, when the intelligence community obtains information about a planned al-Qaeda attack on the United States government facility in Washington. August 1999, when the intelligence community obtains information that bin Laden has decided to target for assassination the Secretary of State. 
and uh, Secretary of Defense in the DCI. December 1999, when Ahmed Rassam is arrested as he attempts to enter the United States in the state of Washington from Canada with chemicals and detonator material, his intended target is Los Angeles Airport. December 1999, when the DCI communication to CIA employees warns a mounting threat of al-Qaeda attack to U.S. interests abroad and in the United States, urging them to do whatever is necessary to disrupt bin Laden's plans. So, when the CIA took over the operation of the Al-Qaeda communications hub in Yemen, they planted a bug inside the house so they could listen to half of what was being said on, say, phone calls or what was said throughout the house. But they couldn't hear incoming calls. And so Michael Shoyer, the head of the Bin Laden issue station from 1996 to 1999, went to the NSA's deputy director, Barbara McNamara, and spoke about getting a copy of the transcripts on their end, in which she said no. So the CIA now became aware of Khalid and became aware of Khalid al-Madar. And soon enough, their connections to al-Qaeda. So why wasn't this information shared with the FBI? Carl Levin, once again, asked this question to the DCI's own George Tenet. That the CIA knew of Khalid's connection to Khalid al-Madar and Awapa Hazmi, but didn't tell the FBI that they were even inside the United States. Even though the CIA and the NSA both knew that both men, Khalid al-Madar and Wapa Hakmi, were inside the United States after their travel from the high-level summit meeting in Malaysia. What was Tenet's response? On October 12, 2000, bin Laden operatives attacked the USS Cole. The FBI, which investigated that attack, learned that a bin Laden follower, Khalid, was the principal planner of the Cole bombing and that two other participants in the coal conspiracy had delivered money to Khalid at the Malaysia meeting. Now, the FBI told the CIA about those facts. That information came from the FBI to the CIA. Okay. CIA went back, reviewed the facts that they had about the Malaysia meeting again. And as a result of that review, in January of 2001, the CIA determined that Khalid had actually been at the Malaysia meeting and that Midhar and Hazmi then, they knew, you knew, had been involved with the planner of the coal bombing. Actually been with the planner of the coal bombing at the Malaysia meeting. CIA again failed to put either Hazmi or Midhar on the watch list or to notify the FBI that Hazmi was in the United States. And my question is, do you know who is responsible for that failure? Sir, can I take you back sure. to the facts for a moment? First of all, in terms of the identification of Khalid, actually it was the FBI who provided the information to us because we were in a joint meeting at the time the third, at a third country because we were running a joint case with somebody who identified Khalid. And indeed, in January of 2001, 
The legal attaché from this third country writes messages to both our headquarters that after have been, having been shown the surveillance photos of Kuala Lumpur, he made an identification of Kalad. I think that's so at that point, at that point, sir, both the CIA and the FBI know that Midhar was in Malaysia and that in, in this time period, and that Kalad was in Malaysia at this time period as well. Now, that's, I, I, that's irrelevant to my point. What you did not notify the CIA of at that point. No, the FBI. Excuse me, but, the, but you did not notify, thank you, the FBI of at that point is that you knew that Hazmi was in the United States. That's correct, sir. That's January now of 2001, another failure. Sir, there are three instances, as I note in my testimony, on my, three my separate question, occasions. I know. My question, do you know who was responsible to notify the FBI at that time? I don't, but I'll find out for you. Well, I do, Michelle Ann Casey, because I've interviewed people from the Bin Laden issue station that worked out of FBI New York and FBI headquarters, like Mark Rossini, who basically said, that when the information came in from the CIA regarding the Malaysian summit and that the CIA had took photographs of Khalid al-Midar and Wapa Hathvi's passports, in what such story, they said they broke into a hotel room and managed to photograph the passports, that they've also found out that they had U.S. visas, dual U.S. visas, and that they were coming to the United States. The FBI read this information, this cable that came in, at the Bin Laden issue station, which was a virtual station created in 1996, to involve the FBI, the NSA, the CIA, to share information about Al-Qaeda dedicated to one person, an organization, to share information regarding Bin Laden and Al-Qaeda and to investigate. However, this was CIA information. So when Doug Miller of the FBI drafted a cable to Washington headquarters of the FBI, he had to get approval from none other than Tom Wilshire, the deputy director of the Bin Laden issue station, in which he told his analyst, the lead analyst of the Yemen hub, the communications hub, Al-Qaeda communications hub, Michelle Ann Casey, please hold off per Wilshire. In other words, do not send this information. And when Mark Rossini went to complain to Michelle Ann Casey, she said it's not the FBI's jurisdiction, even though they're now inside the United States. It is the FBI's jurisdiction. However, what she didn't want to tell Mark Rossini was that the CIA was in charge of this operation. Now, many years later, we know why. Because through the Canistrail documents, the release of the Canistrail documents, I did a podcast about that. Please look, uh, listen to that for more details. It basically said that the CIA was running a black operation, an illegal operation, a covert operation with Saudi intelligence on Khalid al-Midar and Wapahad. Who covered it? Nobody. That's who. FBI wanted to know more about Khalid al-Midar and Wapahad, but the CIA was deathly aware that the FBI would find out. So what did they do? They went fishing. Carl Levin again from the Joint House Inquiry interviews none other than Tom Wilshire, Cobra Black, George Tennant, in which he briefly brings up this meeting in June of 2001 regarding Steve Bongart, Washington, D.C. FBI agent, 
and the CIA's unwillingness to tell them about Khalid al-Banad and Hazmi in total. Proceed now to the June 11th, 2000 meeting, uh, 2001 meeting, because that's what I really want to focus on, and then the events after that. But that's a bit of the background, and if I'm wrong in any of that, I would assume that our witnesses would correct me. On page... Nine at the bottom of Ms. Hill's report. It stated the following. On June 11, 2001, FBI headquarters representatives and CIA representatives met with the New York FBI agents handling the coal investigation. The New York agents were shown but not given copies of the photographs that they and, and told that they were taken in Malaysia. They weren't told that. Still information being withheld. This is after the coal information withheld from the FBI. One of the New York agents recalled that Almidar's name was being mentioned. He also recalled asking for more information on why the people in the photographs were being followed. So we got an FBI now asking the CIA, why are you following these folks? He recalled asking for more information on why they were being followed and for access to that information. The New York agents were advised they could not be told why Al-Midhar and the others were being followed. I, th this is truly unbelievable, I, I've got to tell you, you all. Th this is extraordinary. This has got nothing to do with information which can't cross a wall. This has to do with leads. That's right. Carl Levin is absolutely correct. He's the most important congressional staffer in both investigations because here he is touching on the most important aspect of the 9-11 investigation, pre-intelligence. Why was the information shared to the FBI? Why wasn't it shared? Because it would make a direct connection to al-Qaeda. Khalid al-Minar and al-Fahadmi were at the Malaysia summit meeting in which Khalid Taufik Benatash, the, the alleged mastermind of the coal bombing, was at. So they could make a connection between these two men and al-Qaeda. And if there was a connection, then that means that the Department of Justice, the FBI, would be the lead investigator and that they would actually arrest both of these men had they entered the United States on the first day that they entered here. January 15th of 2000. But at the time, it was perplexing, even to Carl Levin. Why wasn't this information shared? Had he had known about the Kenestrell document, he would know. So what did they do, the CIA? What kind of excuses could they possibly make up at this point? Well, Richard Barr of the 9-11 Commission asked this question about why the CIA and the FBI, had, why didn't the CIA share with the FBI information about Khalid al and Nawab Azmi? Tom Wilshire, who's hiding behind a partition glass, says this. At, uh, at this time, there was no attempt to put these individuals on the watch list, correct? That's right. No discussion. Uh, to the best of your knowledge, 
was the FBI ever notified? To the best of my knowledge, the intent was to uh, notify the FBI, and I believe the people involved in the operation um, thought the FBI had been notified. Uh, something apparently was dropped somewhere, and we don't know where that was. Was, was, uh, there, was there any confusion over the connection of al-Midhar and um, al-Hazmi uh, with individuals tied to the 98 East African bombing? There was... The reason that we were curious about them was we were trying to understand their connection to, um, to the East Africa bombing structure. We didn't know what it was. They were new, new but players But we knew there was us. a connection. We knew there was a connection, an impersonal connection to the, to the bombing structure. But we, you know, we, what you have is a hypothesis. You have a connection to a, 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 a part of it. And so we have two first names, and then we go off and we try and find out more about I've them. The Tom Wilshire is lying because it was him that made that decision to tell Michelle and Casey to not share this information with the FBI. It was him. So he's lying right there. But nobody talks about it. Nobody cares because nobody watches the congressional inquiries. But it wasn't just him. There were others as well about the withholding of information to the FBI. Once again, Carl Levin asked George Tenet this question directly. What was Tenet's response? Remarkably this. Let me, read you the, let me read you the staff report. The CIA analyst who attended the New York meeting acknowledged to the joint inquiry staff that he had seen the information regarding Al-Midar's U.S. visa and Al-Hazmi's travel to the United States, but he stated that he would not share information outside of the CIA unless he had authority to do so. That's what he told our staff. Do you disagree with that? Sir, I've talked to him as well. Do you disagree that he said that to our staff? Well, no, I don't disagree. He said it to your staff. I'm telling you what he told Did he, he tell you something differently? Yes, sir. Okay. He gave me a different perspective. So he told you and he told our staff something differently? Well, okay. The, but I, I think it's important, sir. Yeah, but our time is limited, so let me just keep going. That's the answer. He told you something differently from what he told our staff. Mr. Mueller, Director Mueller, at that June 11th meeting, did the FBI know that Midhar and Hazmi were at the January 2000 meeting of al-Qaeda operatives in Malaysia? I don't believe they did. All right. So we still don't know in June of 2001 what the CIA has known for 15 months. And there it is. The damning report, the damning statements of George Tenet. The analyst at the CIA meeting with the FBI was Clark Shannon. And that he had gotten orders from Tenet directly to not share this information. This is the reason why Clark Shannon was not fired, because George Tenet was lying here. He committed perjury. Saying that Clark Shannon told him something differently. No, he didn't. He told him the truth because the orders came from Tenet not to share this information. Again, Carl Levin brings this up regarding Clark Shannon, who would not share this information with the FBI. And not only did he tell Tenet this, he also inquired to Tom Wilshire regarding why Clark Shannon would not share this information. 
What did Wilshire have to say regarding this? And here's where I want to pick up with our witnesses. The CIA analyst who attended the New York meeting acknowledged to the joint inquiry staff that he had seen the information regarding Al-Midar's U.S. visa and Al-Hazmi's travel to the U.S., but he stated that he would not share information outside of the, S of the CIA unless he had authority to do so and unless that was the purpose of the meeting. Now, June 11th, New York. Now we've got the FBI asking the CIA, would you tell us why you're following these two guys? And according to the CIA analyst, to our staff, that information was denied because no authority to do so, unless that's the purpose of the meeting. So I'll ask our CIA officer, as far as you know, is our staff report correct? I would, uh, the whole staff report? No. Um, what I read to you. Could I just limit my comment to the June 11th meeting That's for right now? Just on that. Okay. Um, Is that correct, what I just read? I would, first of all, I would distinguish between um, one CIA officer saying, I don't feel comfortable with sharing this information with, um, with a particular FBI individual from the entire corporate body of the CIA and its policy. The second thing I would say is that the CIA officer was just asked you if this happened. Not exactly that way. Okay, then tell us how it happened. He wasn't there. That's right. He wasn't there. The only thing he said that was right, he wasn't there. So he can't really know, right? But he's still guilty of not sharing information with the FBI regarding Khalid Al-Badar and Wafazmi. Now, it's not going to be any shock to Wilshire that an analyst at the counterterrorism center like Clark Shannon is actually fishing the FBI to see whether they knew the men in the pictures, who they were. Because had they known, they could pull the operation that the CIA had to end it, along with the Saudis. And so that's the reason why Wilshire obfuscated here. So what can we take away from the CIA and the intelligence community? The CIA anyway, that the CIA collected a ton of intelligence about threats to civil aviation throughout the mid-1990s from bin Laden and Al-Qaeda and Al-Qaeda affiliates. Two, that there was a willingness, an intentional willingness to not share information with the FBI regarding Khalid al-Minar and Wafa Hazmi and their connection to the mastermind, the alleged mastermind of the coal bombing, Taufik bin Atash Khalad, at the Malaysian summit meeting, and three, an intentional withholding of information about the two men arriving inside the United States from the Malaysian meeting, Khalid al-Minar and Wafa Hazmi. So what about the, the local areas of government, like the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration. We should touch on that. Did they receive reports about threats to civil aviation? I mentioned Bob Kerry questioning the former director of the FAA, Monty Belger, regarding this. Bob Kerry of the 9-11 Commission was pretty harsh with Monty Belger because the information from the Bajinka plot was yes, there was a direct threat to civil aviation inside the United States, as per stated by one of the co-conspirators, Abdul Hakim Murad. So why didn't Monty Belger update the information? What was his answer? We were watching for something happening overseas. Let me let me deal into that a little bit. 
Bajinka happens in 95. FAA sent somebody over to Manila. Are you familiar with that? Are you familiar with the FAA sending a representative over to Manila? Yes. And, and what did they come back and say? What did, that, what did that person report after going over to Manila and finding out that a member of Al-Qaeda was going to hijack 12 American airplanes in a suicide fashion? I've got to get both words in here because you all say, geez, I didn't think they could commit suicide. There were 10 attacks by Al-Qaeda against the United States from 1992 to 2001, and nine of them were suicide. We knew by then that bin Laden was going to come after the United States. So what did the guy report when he came back in 1995? What did he tell you? And what was your response to it? Well, my recollection, and I do not have a specific recollection of what was said, but my general recollection was that the threat at that time and continued up through September 11 was really directed outside the borders of the United States. In 1998, after the East African Embassy bombing Mr. Belger, it was in the newspaper that the, that the United States of America federal government arrested two suspects that were in the United States. One in, one in California, one in, in Texas. W why would you reach that conclusion that they were only going to attack outside the United States? The conclusion I reached, sir, was based on the, the, the intelligence information that was given to me. I mean, I can't be any more... I'm talking about stuff that's reported in the newspaper. It doesn't I, come from CIA. That's right out of the darn newspaper. I, I, I hopefully, I, I don't know, sir. I, I don't remember reading that. You're in luck. My time has expired. So Monty Belger actually doesn't know why they did not take stricter security measures. Now, it could be incompetence. I'm not saying he's part of the plot. Can't be. Right? I don't think he is. Nevertheless, incompetence. Incompetence. You have a threat, direct threat to civil aviation. Not just from the Bush administration, but also the Clinton administration as well. And so when Jamie Gorlick at the 9 Commission actually interviews Cathal Flynn, the former head of the FAA Civil Aviation Security between 1993 and 2000, had the FAA made any additional security measures between that heightened tension of, secure, of, of security briefings, threats to civil aviation between the spring and summer of 2001, when the threat report was at its highest? What was the answer by Cathal Flynn? That the entire government was on alert that there was, a, there was tracking of people who, who meant to do harm in this country and that some of that harm was focused on the, uh, our airlines and our aircraft. Did you take additional measures at that time to secure the airlines? Did not impose, that I recall, additional specific measures. You did not? Not, not that I recall. I may, I may be wrong about right. that. In the spring and summer of 2001, when, as our briefings and our testimony to us have indicated, the hair of the intelligence community was on fire, given the nature of the warnings that we were getting, not specific as to what would happen, but that something was about to happen. A, were you aware of those warnings? And I guess you were gone by then, is that right, Admiral Flynn? So I'll, I'll, I'll put that question to Director Mano. Were you aware of that state of affairs? Yes, and, and as I said, we also issued information circulars regarding those. To you, did you adv advise or advocate any further steps than issuing 
the, the directives or security uh, circulars that you issued? Again, the, the role of, of intelligence is to provide the intelligence and, and not to uh, direct or make specific security recommendations. And that's the problem, is that he didn't answer the question. The question was, did they implement stricter security measures? And they didn't. Cockpit doors weren't reinforced. Flight attendants had no training about martyrdom suicide missions on planes. They only had uh, training for traditional hijacking, where they would land the plane and make their demands clear in exchange for prisoner release. So the intelligence either didn't get to the FAA or the FAA didn't bother to act on said intelligence. And that was from the Clinton, that's from the Clinton administration. What about the Bush administration, the FAA under the Bush administration? Well, Transportation Security Director Norm Minow was asked, did they ever imagine multiple airline hijacking, suicide hijackings. Well, that's what John Lehman asked Norm Mineta, and what was his response? Given the fact that there were in the, the preceding couple of years about a half a dozen uh, novels and movies about hijackings being used as weapons, and the fact that there were reports uh, floating around in the intelligence community, did you, uh, did you personally think that that was a possibility that uh, that uh, it could have happened uh, or was when it happened did this take you totally by uh, by surprise because yesterday we had testimony from uh, the former FAA administrator that in effect it uh, it never entered uh, entered her mind well I would have to again say that we I had no thought of uh the airplane being used as a weapon. I think our concentration was more on hijackings, and uh, most of the hijackings as they occur in an overseas setting, or the hijacking, if it were to be a domestic one, was for the person to take, take over the aircraft to have that aircraft transport them to some other place. But it wasn't, uh, but I don't think we ever thought of, of an airplane being used as a missile. So here you have the Transportation Security Administrator, Norm Mineta, stating on record that they had no idea about planes being used as the weapon. You had heard multiple people from the State Department of the Bush administration, like Condoleezza Rice, they had no idea the planes were going to be used as a weapon. The acting director of the FAA, Monty Belger, had no idea that they were going to use a plane as a weapon domestically, even though that the reports, the intelligence from 1995-96 regarding the Bajinka plot were directly correlated with the attacking United States airline industry inside the United States. Now, I'm not saying all these people are in on it. I'm saying that they didn't get this intelligence or that they got certain intelligence that didn't act on it. Malfeasance, if you will. Enough to get people fired. And of course, when you're that high level in these uh, industries, that's a $130,000 job you're not willing to lose. Hell, I'll pass the buck along. And that's exactly why you need to watch these congressional videos. 
to have an understanding of how our governments are incompetent and how incompetence works. Now, even on the days of Nyla, we, we don't even talk, we talk about, we talk about the threats to civil aviation, stricter security measures like cockpit doors. But what about reports of weapons being found on the planes, which would mean that prior to the hijackings of these planes, that the security measures at airports were compromised. And one of the few people who have done investigative work on this, like Paul Thompson and DJ Thermal Detonator, have shown basic reports, news reports, about just that. Joe and Susan Trento, Unsafe at Any Altitude, a great book, by the way, please read it, reported on this subject at Logan International Airport, where it was stated that security guard like Eric Gill saw men on September 10th trying to enter the, 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 um, the security door that leads to the parkway where the planes are parked, the tarmac. And then later on, he identified two of those men Nawapa husband was one. I forgot the other guy's name. Maybe Marwan Al Shahi, I think. I'm not sure. But um, Nawapa husband was the one who yelled at him, cursed him. He was interviewed by the FBI. And nothing was said. Well, according to Bodan Zakovic, the Transportation Security Agency Civil Aviation Inspector. He was asked by 9-11 Commissioner Fred Fielding about a report of a gun on American Airlines 11. After the attacks, incidentally enough, there was a draft report from the FAA, American Airlines, regarding the FAA, by the way, regarding a gun being used to kill Daniel Lewin, the first death on September 11, 2001, where it was later retracted and said he was stabbed. Now, why would they change that if that was the case? Well, Fielding asked that to Bogdavin, and what was his answer? Thank you very much, uh, Commissioner Fielding. Thank you for appearing today and helping us. You said in your testimony that uh, at 9-11 you uh, received information that there was a, a, a firearm from a credible source. Yes. Can you provide us that credible source? I don't know who specifically it was. However, in the operations center, not anybody could just call us up and say, you know, we think this is what happened. Uh, any information that came to us had to come from either the airlines or an FAA office or the FBI or some other government agency. Uh, it wasn't something that just anybody could access. So I, I personally don't know where that came from, but any information we had came from a credible source. Well, help me out a little. You're, you're in a room and you hear that somebody else has received that information? What we had was uh, just a standard operations center had four walls, and on each wall we had big blocks of the butcher paper where whenever anything of substance came in, 
we would write that information down on the paper. And then uh, when we were right putting together the executive summary, without looking at things politically or um, using any other filtering process, we just wrote down the facts that we had. And one of them was that a, a gun was on such and such a flight. And uh, the person also identified um, the seat where the, the gun was held by the passenger and that apparently uh, an individual sitting in front of that seat was shot. Uh, and we just reported that. You remember who wrote it on the butcher paper? Yes, there was a lady by the name of, oh, not, not on the butcher paper, but I know who wrote it on the executive summary. No, but I'm trying to figure out who, who received the information and wrote it on the, on the butcher paper. I'm, I really don't know. Well, I've seen the draft report where it stated that there was a gun used on Flight 11. There was also a reported gun on 77, Flight 77 that crashed in the Pentagon. And that came from a person on the plane. So what can we take away from the FAA? One, that they received reports about threats to civil aviation and did not act on it. Two, that they misread the reports and thought there would be transnational planes, not domestic flights. Three, that security measures were not taken to ensure the safety of their clientele regarding threats to civil aviation anywhere, internationally or domestically. Four, that security could have been compromised at the airports themselves. Lastly, NORAD, air defense. What the hell happened here? How could it be possible that four planes could be hijacked by Al-Qaeda terrorists and successfully crash into the World Trade Center Pentagon and one crashes in a field in Shanksville? How could, how could it be possible? Where was our air defense? Rick Scott, who is a retired uh, Air Force and Continental uh, Colonel, Alan Scott, I'm sorry, gave a timeline to the 9-11 Commission. At 8.46, the last data uh, near the Trade Center, 8.46, the first impact on the Trade Center. At that uh, minute uh, is when the Otis uh, F-15s were scrambled, and again, they were 153 miles away. And that scramble came, and uh, General Arnold, I'm sure, can address this, based on a conversation between the Northeast Sector Commander and himself. Those F-15s were airborne in six minutes. That is well inside the time that is allowed for them to get airborne. But because they were on battle stations, the pilots were in the cockpits ready to start engines, uh, that scramble time was shortened by a significant amount of time. At 8.53, 850, uh, that's a minute later, in the radar reconstruction, we're now picking up the primary radar contacts uh, off of the F-15s out of Otis. At 8.57, which is um, uh, seven minutes after the first impact, is, according to our logs, when the FAA reports the first impact. And about this time, uh, is when CNN coverage uh, to the general public is beginning to appear on the TV, not of the impact, but of the burning tower shortly thereafter. So you, you can see what in the military, I'm sure you've heard us uh, talk to the fog and friction of war, and as the intensity increases, uh, the lag tends to also increase for how quickly information gets passed. 
902, United 70, uh, 175, the second air airplane, which, by the way, never turned off its transponder uh, before impact, crashes into uh, the North Tower. Now, here's the problem with this timeline, is that the timeline, according to the Night Living Commission co-chair Thomas Kane, as well as Tim Romer, basically said that the after uh, Nora had testified, that they gave a totally wrong timeline, that the timeline did not match up to the timeline of the Federal Aviation Administration. Now, the FAA timeline is going to be very precise because they're getting their information from who? Directly from the planes themselves. Where is NORAD getting their timeline? According to some major generals, the uh, timeline came from the FAA. But th that couldn't have been because NORAD's timeline is different from the FAA's by either one, between anywhere between one and four minutes. Now, that's a lot specific. That's a lot. Now, when I say a lot, you know, NORAD defense planes can fly up to like 800 miles an hour. I don't know the max speed, but it's, it's, it's high rate of speed. And when, you go, when you're getting from, say, Otis to New York, it takes a matter of a minute or two if they got the information correctly, precisely. And NORAD basically stated that we didn't get the information right away. But did the FAA notify NORAD about Flight 11's hijacking in time? Max Cleland asked that question to the former administration of the FAA, Jane Garvey, and this is what she had to say in regards to the hijacking of Flight 11. Uh, published accounts indicate that Boston flight controllers determined that American Airlines Flight 11 had been hijacked as early as 8.13 a.m. that morning, and that two flight attendants telephoned American Airlines personnel with confirmation that a hijacking occurred at 8.21. Yet according to, to the FAA official timeline, NORAD was not notified until 8.40, about, what, 20-some-odd minutes later. Uh, is that basically accurate, basically your understanding? Um Commissioner, I did see the uh, the notice of the flight attendants. I'm not aware of that, and, and, I, and I will I will give you the the synopsis or the the chronology as I understand it. But again, I think it's uh, I'd I'd want to 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 uh, get the real precise numbers from the from the air traffic control people. But as I recall it, and from my own notes of looking back and um, jotting some things down. Uh, 8.20, about 8.20 was the first indication for Boston that there was a problem. Now there was no, uh, there, there is a special signal that a, that, uh, that a pilot can give, as, as I know you know, Senator, for, uh, for uh, if, uh, if it's a hijacking or there is an emergency. There was nothing like that, but the, the, the uh, transponder or the signal was lost, and so the procedure is to begin to contact the aircraft. And I, I believe, and again, we'd you, we'd want to double check this, but I believe that there was an attempt to raise uh, the um, pilot, raise the aircraft about three or four times, and they were unsuccessful. And so, at about 8:34, uh, based on the good initiative of the controller and his supervisor. 
um, the the uh, NORAD was was actually that was the first notification from um, from the controller and the supervisor to Otis. It was the the official one is 8:40 as you've suggested. After they did that, they then called uh, up to headquarters and then the official notification. Um, what that said to us, and when you when we think about what protocols did we need to re-examine, that was one. We applaud the controller, applaud the supervisor for taking individual initiative on taking that action, but we recognize that we needed to make that communication much clearer. We needed to change the protocol, and there are some changes. Some are classified, but certainly could be provided to this committee. But there were changes that were made that made it very clear, uh, or made it much clearer. But I do want uh, to commend the <coughs> controller and the supervisor who at 834 called Otis. But even if they called Otis, could they have gotten to the hijacked airplanes in time? Now, when it comes to a shoot-down authority, it goes like this. The President of the United States and if he's indisposed, it's the Secretary of Defense. If he's indisposed, it's NORAD. On September 11, 2001, the president was on Air Force One with a broken communications line to the PIOC Center, the Presidential Executive Operations Center, Emergency Operations Center. The Secretary of Defense, where was he? Oh, he's outside the Pentagon helping the injured and the wounded. He's not into PIOC when Flight 77 crashed the Pentagon. So who gave the shoot-down authority? Well, according to some reports, it's the Vice President, Dick Cheney, who is not part of the military chain of command. But on that day, in those two hours, he was part of the military chain of command. And part of NORAD was involved with this as well. Now, when the question came up of whether NORAD could have gotten to these planes in time, had the information, James Thompson, the 9-11 Commission, asked that question to the North American Aerospace Defense NORAD commander, Ralph Eberhardt. Had they have gotten all information on time, could they have shot down all these planes? If everything had gone perfectly, if all the information that the controllers had had gone smoothly to FAA command centers, if all the information the FAA command centers had gone smoothly to the military, the vice president's authorization to shoot down intruding aircraft had been communicated to the pilots, would it have been physically possible for the pilots, the military pilots, to have shot down the airplane that hit the first tower, the airplane that hit the second tower, and the airplane that hit the Pentagon, assuming everything had gone perfectly, everybody was perfectly prepared, focused inward, scrambled, armed, all the authorization there, all the information there, would it have been physically possible for the military to have intercepted those three aircraft before they completed their <clears throat> terrible mission? Sir, our, our modeling, uh, which we've shared with the staff, reflects that given the situation that you've outlined, which we think is a situation that exists today because of, of the fixes, the remedies put in place, we would be able to shoot down all three aircraft, all four aircraft. Well, that's 
remarkable because according to NORAD's own lieutenant generals like Larry Arnold, that couldn't be the case. So when Lee Hamilton, the co-chair of the 9-11 Commission, asked Larry Arnold, Major General Larry Arnold, NORAD, could NORAD have shot down Flight 77 before it impacted the Pentagon? Finally, as I understand your testimony, um, it was not possible uh, to shoot down any of these aircraft before they struck. Uh, is that basically correct? Uh, uh, that is correct. In fact, uh, the American Airlines 77, if we were to have arrived overhead at that particular point, um, I don't think that we would have shot that aircraft down. Because? Well, we had not been given authority. You, you, to you didn't have authority at that point. And, um, you know, it is through hindsight yeah. that we are certain that this was a coordinated attack upon the United States. But had you gotten scrambled earlier, notified earlier of 77's deviance about when it turned east, for instance, uh, certainly you could have got the F-16s there and, and uh, presumably there would have been time to communicate to either get or be denied authority, no, for 77. I, I believe that to be true. I believe that to be true. It had to happen very fast, but, but it would, I believe that to be true. What efforts were made that day to contact the president to seek that authority? I do not know. See, now this is the problem. Look, you had a report when Flight 11 and 175 crashed into World Trade Center Towers. And it was a foregone conclusion. Any, anybody knew this was a terrorist attack. It wasn't an accident. That NORAD could have made the decision to conduct the extreme measure of shooting down a plane had you know they're in the chain of authority but they waited for the president who wasn't at the piac at the time and that his line on air force one wasn't stable enough the decision came much later after flight 93 had crashed in shanksville now here here's the thing was there a shoot down order or was there a stand down order Now, for years, I actually thought there was a stand-down order for Flight 77, but Minetta got there late. And he said that the plane that was coming in, that wasn't 77, that was 93. Because 77 had already crashed. And I changed my, 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 my thinking on that with the newest information that I've received. For years, I thought he was talking about 77. No, it was 93. Now, to some... People are saying that, no, his timeline was off. And that he arrived earlier, before 77 crashed the Pentagon. Needless to say, the most important glaring issues here are the inaction of NORAD and a false timeline. But what about 93? Now, we knew from reports on the news that 93 was in the air and that it was hijacked. The FBI knew about the hijacking of 93. They knew about the hijacking of 77 for 40 minutes. Tim Romer of the 9-11 Commission asked Larry Arnold, did they get orders for a shoot down of 93 at least? Did they get at least that much? 
What did Lariano have to say? When Secretary Mineta talked a little bit about uh, arriving at uh, the White House at about 9.20 <clears throat> and then overhearing a conversation at about 9.24, 9.25 between the Vice President and a young aide where he inferred that there was already an order in place for a shoot-down. And he assumed it was for uh, American Airlines 77. So sometime even before 9.20, there was an order in place that he overheard in uh, the Presidential Executive Operations Center that had some exchange between, I assume, the Vice President, the President, and maybe the Special Ops uh, uh, the Situation Room, uh, and, and they had determined that they would have the authority communicated to somebody to shoot down American Airlines Flight 77. Were you at all aware of anything sometime after 9.15 or 9.20 to shoot down American Airlines Flight 77? I was never aware of any order given to shoot down of, um, American Airlines 77. So nothing was ever conveyed to you by the White House or by the FAA administrator or by the Secretary of Transportation on Flight 77? That's correct. So the only time that you ever received information on a shoot-down was on Flight number 93, and that was After from the fact. That was, excuse me? After the fact. That was after the fact, and that was after 10 o'clock. That's correct. And that was from who? It was from Cheyenne Mountain, I assume, from the commander so of North American Air Defense Command. Your assumption is, is that the White House communicated that to Cheyenne Mountain, they and then Cheyenne Mountain communicated through that the to National you. Military Command Center. Now, that's in direct contradiction to what Al Ralph Eberhardt saying. Ralph Eberhardt basically said that had the information been shared with NORAD, all the planes could have been shot down. Now, you heard from Major General Arion, who basically stated that, one, Flight 77 couldn't have been shot down, and two, Flight 93, they weren't given any authority to shoot down the plane. So there was no shoot-down authority from the President or from the Secretary of Defense. So who gave the shoot-down authority? Well, it had to have been Dick Cheney, the Vice President, who's not part of the military chain of command. Not only that, NORAD gave a false timeline regarding the hijackings. Why? That's a question I like answering. So what could we take away from NORAD? One, that there were indeed threats to civil aviation and that uh, these threats uh, to civil aviation were not acted upon. Two, they gave a false timeline of events regarding hijackings and the impacts of the World Trade Center Pentagon in Shanksville. Three, contradictions within their own hierarchy of command about action taken upon hijacked air flights where had the information been shared they could have shot down all the planes but no they couldn't shoot down 77 or 93 because of aerospace uh, restrictions and no shoot down authority So we covered five areas of the congressional inquiries. We, we, I didn't even cover INS, FBI, 
local police departments, Office of Emergency Management personnel, the mayor of New York, the governor of New York, and lots of others. And I figured I'd choose these five areas which show the glaring contradictions and egregious mistakes, including some maliciously regarding handling of intelligence. Because what I want to show here is accountability. And this question was actually was actually asked to members of the intelligence community by Richard Shelby, a center of the Joint House Inquiry. We asked members of the FBI, the director of the FBI, the NSA, and the CIA, what he thinks accountability is, because that's what this is about. These investigations, these podcasts, the uploads I make, the written work I produce, the many years of study into this field, because I naively believe that there can be justice. What else are we in this for? I'm not making money, any money from this. Because I do believe that there has to be accountability for something like this. So what were their answers? Hey, General, what does what um, accountability mean sure. to you, sir? There's a difference between a job not being done Absolutely. and a job being done in a slipshod way. That's right. And I think what Director Tennant was pointing out, that the issues that this committee and our dialogue has uncovered are systemic issues that we put people in situations in which they had inadequate tools or inadequate circumstances to succeed but not always now we've had general i i, I we'll all concede that you need more resources and I, we've worked with you senator graham and other members of the committee to revamp as a priority nsa and and, and you're working toward that right. goal we have to it's national sure. We work with Director Tennant. Yes, uh, you have. I'm not on the Judiciary Committee or the Criminal Justice uh, Appropriations, but I know others have worked in that regard. I know you don't have too many resources, but a lot of this is, is decisions that people make or fail to make. Director Tennant. Well, sir, let me let me just say. What does responsibility, accountability mean to you? Well, sir, I, when you look at this, I, I look at it in the following ways. I look at anybody's performance. Sure. I say, uh, tell me about the integrity of the individual, how hard they were working. Tell me about their understanding of their job. Tell me about whether they were slipshod. Tell me about whether they were paying attention to detail and doing everything they knew how to do. Now, when somebody, when somebody, Stop you a minute, let me just say, in knowing everything they knew how to do, but what if you had people in these jobs that didn't know what they were doing, and didn't know the standard? And uh, uh, I know some people at the bureau. Uh, we had testimony here. Didn't know the FISA standard. Even lawyers over there, uh, Director Mueller. I'm not saying it's your fault. I'm just saying that they're inadequately trained. Go ahead, Director Tennant. I'll try not to stop you again. No, it's okay, sir. Keep going. I, I lost my train of thought. I apologize. Maybe you'll pick it up again. I was on a roll. Uh, what? What is? No, you you thought you were. You weren't on. A roll. <laughs> no, I, I was on a roll, sir. I, I don't think so. Uh, Director Muller, uh, what is your feeling? Uh, what's your what? How do you feel about the word accountability? The term accountability is that responsibility? And in I the think context, it's, it's, what I does think it it's mean? giving people both the responsibility and the authority to do a job to set out parameters, uh, what you expect from people, and if they do not live up to those parameters, uh, then you hold them 
uh, quote accountable. You move them or you or you yes, absolutely. Okay. But it is the ultimate accountability is me. Oh, you it, and it, it, I have to set those standards. <laughs> I have to give them the tools to do the job. It does not make any sense for me to hold somebody accountable if I have not been given them the responsibility, the authority, and the tools to do the job. That is just uh, I, that's wrong. And so, in terms of something like the the training huh. on the FISA issue. It's a responsibility of me to ensure when I see something like that, that we put into place the mechanisms to get those individuals trained. If we did not give them the training, I cannot hold accountable that person who was inadequately trained because I did not provide the person with that training. Well, Mueller came the closest. Tenet was inadequate, and Hayden basically just drifted off. Well, if they don't know anything about accountability, then it's up to us, the people, to make the change necessary for the system to run morally sound and one that is directly responsible for taking responsibility when they don't perform their jobs. That's it for this episode of The Dark and Hour. I'm your host, Adam Fitzgerald. Thank you. Have a good night, everybody.